Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome back to the Prep to Pro NBA Draft Podcast. My name is Ben Pfeiffer and as always, I'm joined by my co-host Max Carlin. Max, how's it going? My spirits have been raised by talking about Killian Hayes. How are you, Ben? I, I'm doing well. Spirits are high. The, 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 chats are, the chats are good. And like Max said, we're, we're still talking Killian Hayes with PD Webb. Um, PD, how's it going? It's going great. Thank you guys for having me back on such short notice. <laughs> As sports keep coming back, so does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, betonline.ag. Major League Baseball will soon be in full swing, and there are no shortage of ways to get in on the action. BetOnline has all the odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. Also, tune in as Floyd Money Mayweather joins the BetOnline team in a new segment called The Ice is Right, where he talks about his expansive jewelry collection. He'll give you the chance to win some great prizes and bet on the cost of his bling. Visit BetOnline.ag to check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the Welcome Back Sports bonuses. BetOnline, your on- your online wagering experts. Uh so if you guys somehow missed part one, uh, you should rectify that. Go listen to part one. Uh, obviously, same same uh, disclaimer uh, applies before this. Go read PD's piece on his Patreon uh, before listening to this. Um, but yeah, well, let's get right back into it. Um, with perhaps an aspect of Killian Hayes uh, that won't be as fun to discuss, but one that's important. And I think... Um, I think it's less damaging than it's necessarily made out to be. Uh, we're talking about Killian Hayes' right hand. Um, so, PD, do you want to, like, I, I feel like, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are approaching this from a standpoint that there's, uh, like, a fundamental misconception about, like, why Killian doesn't use his right hand. Um, do, do you want to get into that? Yeah. So the first thing is the the public conception of Killian is that he doesn't like not having a right shows up in like a very um, like clear way, which is that he doesn't go right. He doesn't finish right. And in the reality, like he has no problems going right. Like A lot of his best stuff is going right and creating going right. The issue is that he doesn't need to use his right for the level that he plays on. He does not use the right unless there is a 0% chance that the left works. So if he's going to his right, he will jump pass and throw a left-hand hook pass because the, there was a chance that that pass gets through. Um, this is different because, like, 
I mean, obviously, like, you can't have a handle as developed as Killian is if you only have one hand. Like, if people would just sit on it. And when people try to uh, overplay the, him towards screens, like, there were five, six, seven clips of people trying to, like, uh, hard play screens, you know, deny him getting to the action and force him to his right. And Killian set them up and, like, he dropped two people with three more, like, needing new ankles. And... I think that that's like very much missed in the nuance of the discourse, but like what it means to be overtly left-handed. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there are issues for him going right. And that mainly presents itself in predictability that like going to his right. Number one, he always wants to go to a step back jumper like that. That's kind of like the thing that he always wants to do going to his right. And I do think that, that you see, a just reduced dynamism when going to his right because he like he is disinclined to to try to finish with his right like he he does not he is not really able to throw live dribble passes on the move with his right um and so he what he is looking to do is is get to the step back and he's 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 just a much less explosive player Going to his right, I don't think that he necessarily has the same level of body control. I mean, not body control, ball control. Um, and I think that his just his uh, reservations about trying to finish going to his right lead to a lot of settling, um, and that's that is compounded by by like I said, the lack of of functionality to his passing going right. That like there are situations where he'll say he, he's running a pick and roll going to his right. And, and there is a, you know, right, a, a live dribble righty pocket pass there. Or there, he could rise up with a righty hook and hit the roll man, but he can't. And then he tries to, to adjust and make that a, a lefty pass. And he does have some, some either two handed passes or lefty passes that can work in that scenario. Like he, he can throw a two, a two handed over the head pass. Uh, like he can do these things, but like you pointed out in your piece, like that's often passing into a second window after the first window with his right has already closed. So there are limitations there, but, and I think I've been guilty of this in the past too. It's not that he doesn't play on the right side of the floor. I think he's just a less dynamic player. And, and, and the, the predictability I think is a bit of an issue. Um, but there are other aspects to that as well that he, I think that, that's something you you definitely got at in, in the piece is that he um he's a guy who knows how to play with defenders and I think that some of that's being realized with with uh you know attacking to his right that he knows that guys are going to sell out to his his step back because that's what he wants to get to and so you'll see situations like where he'll step back and then he'll realize that the big is committing to him and he'll he'll throw a, a beautiful lead pass to Grant Jarrett on the roll like. He's learning these things, and for, just for a guy with his ability to change pace and to toy with defenders, I think that that's very encouraging, that we're going to see more and more of him playing off of what defenders expect from him to manipulate them and create uh, shots for himself and his teammates. Yeah, I think the fact that he has counters is an important consideration here. Um, we've we've talked about... and. Some have brought up the thing with R.J. Barrett and, and his left-hand issues, but R.J. Barrett didn't have any counters. R.J. Barrett does not have counters, and he, uh, he, I don't know, he likely will never have the counters that Killian Hayes has, and that's you know part of 
that 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 compounds his his left hand dominance as an issue as he doesn't have any any direct counter to yeah just this direct counter to to a defense overplaying his left side whereas Killian is already learning how to do that and you know already shows more change of pace and direction than than RJ has where where just because yes he he can't really drive with his right hand as effectively he can get back to that left side more effectively than someone RJ can. And, and he can be deceptive and and you know make it work in different kind of ways. And I think it's important to note that like like we said, he's not like a total zero on the right side of the floor. He's certainly not as dynamic and, and not as electric there. But he but he certainly can play there. And it's not like a total limiting factor, even if like even if it is concerning. I think that there's two types of counters that you guys are talking about. The first one is uh, like wiggle counters, which is where someone gets into the wrong spot and you make them pay. Which is like the thing that that RJ really lacks is the like if you load up he really only has like the one counter which is like you know RJ smash, <laughs> uh, and then there's the second type which is um, like scout book counters like someone has a scouting report on Killian and at the pro level versus like what will happen a lot in uh, college or in in you know high level AAU is the like teams generally do their thing. They might make a couple adjustments, maybe like really big adjustments if a player is, you know, all world, like, you know, double stuff curry literally every second on the floor. But you, there's a, a level you have to be at. Generally in Europe, they're making these adjustments on the fly. So Killian is seeing what people with the scouting report are doing, and he's countering to that schematic idea. And that is the thing that is most encouraging. Like, it's nice to have, you know, the ability to like get pushed left. And like in and out to lean them a little bit further and then snatch it back. Like that's great. Like that would be a huge step for somebody like RJ. But to have the internalization of what the other person's scouting report says until, you know, okay, so if, if the scouting report is that I love the overhead pass, then I'm gonna fake the overhead pass, look to the corner, wait for him to retreat, then I'm gonna throw the log. Like that internal mapping of the game and of the defense is the thing that encourages me more most. He encourages me the most. And if he didn't have those like dribble counters or even just like ability to to move himself, that's still a pro mindset. And that's still a pro ability to like feel out the game. Do you worry about not not even I would say specialized coverages? Because like like you said, that's just not something that's gonna be applied to a player normally. Like, yes, the people will throw that at James Harden, but you know, generally a guy's not gonna get that. But do you do you worry at all about Killian not having a, like schematic counters in some in some senses because that's kind of the the thing that you know I would make the case for him is, is that like I, I feel like he does usually have an answer there there was one game I can't remember who it was against but there was one game where they were like weaking him the entire time and forcing him to his right and it did kind of work um, and I don't know that right now he necessarily has a counter to that but that's kind of a situation where. I mean, one one the change of direction helps with a lot of these things, uh, but with that, like it's it's developing the craft, uh, getting guys on his back and playing with his size and strength. Um, but do do you worry about him in any in like any specific um, things that he might see beyond uh, or like short of of specialized coverages? So the biggest issue that I think he's going to face is um, when teams just decide that they will live with the right-hand pocket pass on every single possession and make his read right-hand pocket pass or a live dribble skip to the corner, which is like, you know, the, 
the holy grail of live dribble ball handlers who are over six foot six. Like he has that in his bag. He can throw it, but like I want to see how comfortable he is with that right hand because like that pass is incredibly hard versus NBA defenses. The the dudes who can really throw that at his size are so rare. And the idea of him, you know, throwing it with two hands because he's not quite comfortable, right? Versus just like making the simple pocket pass. I think the teams are going to overload against the roller um, and then X out on the weak side and just say, like, okay, throw that right hand pocket pass every single time. Um, I think that that's like pretty good offense, to be honest, especially if you have a, a, a big who can make short roll decisions. But like that's going to eliminate his dynamism until he proves that he can throw these, you know, JV passes. To be like completely honest, yeah. I mean, do you, I do you think that right-handed passing to that level, or I guess weak-handed passing to that level, is something that at this stage a guy can really add? Uh, or are you kind of worried that as a passer, that these are kind of the tools that Killian is going to have to work with? I mean, like, so we can all agree the best case for development here is Harden. Like that's the, uh, yeah. like just in terms of a guy being super left-handed. Yeah. Um, and Harden still struggles with that right-hand skip pass. Mm-hmm. If you push him right and then ask him to make that cross-court right-hand skip pass, he, like that's his weakest pass. Um, so like, I don't think that there's a likelihood that he turns out like fully ambidextrous, but like the sort of passes that he has to make to be valuable on the right side, especially if he's on, like a, on a team that runs two side pick and roll is like, that's a really low bar to clear. Mm-hmm. If he can make a, like a right-hand shovel pass, like we're getting somewhere. If he can throw a push pass from guard to guard, like while freezing the tag defender, like that's that's those are huge things, and that's why I think that like while it's a concern and something that like the team is going to have to sit down with him and like rip to death, and he's going to have to be able to make live live game mistakes, um, and like they're going to have to be willing to throw him in the fire with that and and live with the results for the first year or two. Um, the bigger issue is that that like if he doesn't make those covering him is going to be really easy, but it's doable. So is this, is the answer really then that he needs to be put in an offense where the off ball movement of his teammates is pressuring the defense in a way that you can't, that it's not that simple, that it's not just like you're isolating Killian and, and can, can exploit his weaknesses, but you know, there, there's so much off ball movement that it's just complicating things for the defense. Yeah, and that, you know, muddying the water before the pick and roll, um, you know, running like uh, like the, the Utah, uh, like ZHOs, so like zipper handoff. So you bring him off a zipper cut, and that's into a um, – the, off the zipper cut, the big has it, and the big hands it off. Now you're into a place where the defense is already starting behind, so they can't like overload into those really contorted positions to force Killian into uncomfortable decisions. And that's doable. Like if you have somebody who's willing to be clever enough, like you can get these, especially if it's a second side player, it's difficult when you're the only guy and you have to create. Um, but if you're, if you're running a second side offense, you can get him a lot of looks where the defense is already contorted. And then from there, these developmental situations arise naturally from the game. Yeah. And I think that that's an important point to address. And it's kind of like one of the first things that you get at in the breakdown um, is that Killian is not, uh, the you know he's not the sun, the moon, and the stars, and everything in between. Like he is, he is not Trey Young. But do do you think that he can be, like like he can be the co guy in a situation where 
yeah, like maybe maybe he is attacking off the second side or or just in an, in an offense like Utah's where there is a lot of movement and a lot of guys are getting opportunities with the ball in their hands. Like, like is that your conception of, of how Killian is likely to succeed? You mean like a Charlotte? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of like the, the idea is that um, in a world that really wants like dynamic movement shooters and like is willing to pay an extreme premium for them. Um, those are the sort of people in a sort of offense that would also like enable Killian success. So they're sort of um, like I talk about the game moving a lot and it being a moving target, like the, the window of where the game is going has moved in a way that like it has brought these like big shooters who don't necessarily offer a ton. Like if I drafted Killian, I would take, I would pay Davis Bertans a hilarious amount of money. <laughs> To be like, okay, cool. Um, we're gonna run you two pick and rolls, and uh, everybody else is gonna have to deal with that, or we're gonna run like handoffs, and then teams can't really go under them. Yeah, like you can, you can, based on the sort of players you have in today's game, you can get Killian into developmental situations faster. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that like that is really important with Killian that goes under discussed is that like despite his his uh lack of a right hand he's not bad like he is not bad at any of these things that are ostensibly hampered by his right hand and that's not to say that his lack of right hand is not a problem like it is a problem that he can't throw a right-handed pocket pass or a right-handed skip like these things matter and they close windows and they create turnovers uh, and they sacrifice points that could be there and they leave points on the table. However, he is still an amazing passer. He is still a good finisher. Um, but so the thing that, that you, you mentioned in your, in your breakdown is that Killian is the Josh green of passing, but he's still good at it. And I think that's very, very important to keep in mind because like well, something that we've, we've talked about a lot in this podcast is that you should evaluate functional basketball skills. Like it, it, it matters to have burst, but if that burst is not applied to actually getting to the rim or actually breaking down the defense, getting your feet in the paint and, and creating for others, it doesn't matter. Like it's not actually a functional basketball skill. That's kind of like the entire problem with Anthony Edwards is that a lot of these things look really good, but they're not actually functional basketball skills. Um, but Killian is an amazing passer in spite of that. Meanwhile, Josh Green, like the most remarkably one-handed finisher in this class, is an eighth percentile half-court rim finisher. Like he cannot finish at all. And so Killian, yes, he has these problems where he doesn't have an offhand, but it ha- it hasn't actually mattered to this point. Yeah, and yeah, I, I think there's... I think there's room for... I mean, like this... like I mean, unlike finishing, like like Killian's left-hand dominant passing can be schemed for like, like we've been talking about it like for this whole time. Like, I mean, Ulm coach name escaping me. One of you help. Yaka uh, Lakovic. Yes. Yaka Lakovic did an excellent job scheming to get Killian to his strong left hand. And that's, I mean, that's something that can be replicated at, in, at the NBA level. Whereas, you know, it's a lot more difficult, maybe not even possible to scheme for, you know, a, a guy who can't finish with one hand, let alone the other hand in the greens case. But, you know, who, who can't finish with, with one hand. That's something you can't really scheme for since finishing is such like a reflexive kind of skill. Um, we're passing this as well, but 
not nearly as much. So I get it. Like, it's just like, it's not as much of a detriment as maybe we've made it to sound though. Like though, like, like though Max said, it's still a concern. Um, but Killian, Killian is, is like a very good passer, like one of the better ones in this class. And when you add that to all of the good things that his size and like we talked about last episode is his change of pace and his strength and, you know, ability, uh, growing ability to create for himself, it, 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 it makes a strong offensive package. Yeah, you used an important word there, which is create. Like passing is a technical skill. Um, creation is a schematic skill. Josh Green is a very bad finisher, a technical skill. Killian ran an offense with functionally one hand tied behind his back for a portion of it. Like, not only is it worlds harder, he was also worlds better. Like, it is important to note that, like, this dude is doing things that are extraordinarily hard while being at a pretty serious, like, if, if you could use half of your hands more, like, you would want to use both of the two hands that are available to you. Like, that's generally a beneficial concept. Um, yeah. This sort of leads into, like, the what I would consider like the bigger issue with Killian is like, how do you use him off the ball? And we talked about um, his one, two uh, shooting concerns and uh, Killian didn't have to cut. He his the own system was to sort of have the guards do the Harden Chris Paul routine, which is like their job was to create or to spot up. Like there was not a third responsibility. Um, So a, an NBA coach is going to have to figure out a way to both sort the shooting and sort how you get killing into these situations without exposing his still developing like technical aspects. And that's where like this actually like the idea of safety comes into play. Cause like that's hard. Yeah. I mean, as we talked about, as we, as we talk about plenty of this pod off ball play is a skill. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's something that players have to learn. And like PD just said, Killian's role off the ball was either to spot up or to go get the ball. Um, and that's not going to be the case in, in the NBA or he's not, he's almost certainly not going to be in an offense that asks him every time he's off the ball, not shooting to just go, go clap his hands at the person with the ball and, and get it back. Um, or, I mean, I think we were all in some sort of agreement that learn him learning how to cut and learning how to play off ball is certainly possible. And, you know, within the realm of, of possible developments for Killian, but like it, it's not something he's going to have right away. I mean, c- compounding the the catch and shoot issues with just an inability to do do little, you know, off ball minutia like relocation and, and intelligent spacing and and smart cutting. You know, those those are skills and and, and very useful skills for, for for a guy who doesn't have the ball in his hands. And I I mean I wonder I, I feel like it's lower on the on the difficulty spectrum in terms of things to teach. Um, yeah. I mean, this is kind of, I mean, relating to the point, uh, PD, that you make about the value of just a a longitudinal view of prospects. Killian, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's never really been asked to play off the ball. Like, I think I I had asked uh, our friend Ignacio about this, if he could recall a time when Killian had been put in a context where he was asked to be a dynamic off-ball player, and and I don't think he could recall one. But PD, do you, do you know? Has that is that something he's ever done? No. Um, all the systems have used him in this like super uh, pick and roll heavy, like stay above above the break on on offense unless it's for like a wing spot up. Uh, pretty much every single time I've seen. Which is because he's good at it. But like my kind of contention with this is yes, these off-ball things are skills that need to do need to be developed. But I do think that it's a pretty 
plastic skill, especially for a guy like Killian, who we know has incredible vision and incredible like internal mapping of the court. He understands the cause and effect of various things that happen on a basketball court. I don't really see a reason that he cannot become an active and good off-ball player. And I think that it's, it is both unfair and unwise to you know judge based on it yeah an offense at Ulm that was what it was asking of him was to either you know run pick and roll spot up or like back out maybe maybe not back out all the way to like you know half court like he kind of does waiting to get the ball back but you know that was his role was to be a a guy who takes turns being an on-ball player um and I I don't see a lot of reason that he cannot develop as an off-ball player like we talked about this with John Chepkevich that in that Arturs Kuruks video, like Arturs Kuruks said he had to learn how to be an off-ball player because he had spent all of his life playing on the ball. You know, th- it, it will take time, but once he gets reps in that role, I, I don't see a reason why he cannot become an effective off-ball player beyond the, like, he needs the, you know, self-organizational principles to become an effective rhythmic catch-and-shoot shooter. Yeah, and also gravity is going to be in his favor as a guard. Like, uh, a lot of people have to learn off-ball uh, responsibilities. Gravity works against them because of the position they play, uh, being a one or two, depending on how you align him. Like gravity works in his favor because we have now spacing to four and five. Um, the reason why you don't see a lot of teams run like second side pick and roll um, or have their young uh, guards live off-ball is that not every system is Serbia where they just trust every single one of their bigs to like make good decisions. Um, that's one of the youth revolutions we'll have in the next like four or five years is that um, teams are starting to run offense through their bigs at like, you know, a 1975 clip. It's like, obviously it looks different, but like young bigs are like, Hey, my route to getting paid at, you know, 13, 14, six, eight, six, nine, six, 10, like my route to getting paid is being a good passer. So I would like to run DHL. I would like to run pick and roll. I would like to run, you know, uh, planned uh veer cuts and as a result of that we're going to have a you know another generation of guards who could cut killian's never been put in a system where like a big deserved enough big deserved or asked for enough usage to have killian cut i think that this goes back to the sam mitchell point about like hey you're going to be in a world with chris paul you better learn how to do something else because chris paul's gonna have the ball in the same. <laughs> like it when it behooves you to stay on the court to learn how to cut most guys learn how to cut and I mean, I, I look, I secured the documents. I found two clips of Killian cutting. Um, I, he, I think he can do it. He's capable of doing it, but it, it is, it is hard to divorce role from ability, but I, I do just, it's, it's just something that has to be noted with Killian that like, he is a guy who has always been asked to play on the ball. And I just don't want to, it, it like, you know, Devin Booker in the past, hasn't necessarily been the greatest off-ball player, the most active off-ball player, because he's been asked to be an on-ball guy. Um, this year, Ricky Rubio's there. He's asked to be more of an off-ball guy, and he's you know one of the better off-ball scorers in the league. Like, I, I don't think that you should necessarily knock a guy for like some specifically off-ball play when the demands of his role can be very specific in a way that that kind of precludes standout off-ball. Yeah, it's the Trey Young thing. Like Trey Young, it's is probably an otherworldly off ball player. He just never gets to do it because nobody has been able to get him off ball enough to really utilize it. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, there is the issue there of like you know these guys don't play off ball because they're like 
having them on ball is worthwhile. Like it, it, it is you like almost always going to be the thing that's worthwhile, but I, that, you know, that doesn't mean that they can't do it. And that doesn't mean that they shouldn't do it sometimes. Uh, you know, you, you need to strike some sort of a balance with that. Um, and I think that will very much be the case for Killian. And I, I think that he can develop into a guy who's, you know, a plus in that regard. Like I, w- will he necessarily be the, you know, one of the best off ball guards in the league? I, I, I kind of doubt it. And I mean, he hasn't even shown the flashes that someone like Lamelo has shown uh, as an off ball player, but I, I just don't see a lot of reason to think that there's something actually limiting Killian from being a, a at the very least competent off ball player. Yeah, I mean, it's just been, I mean, at this point, it's just opportunity. And I think what could limit him in the future is likely just going to be opportunity again. Should we, um, should we now finish up with, uh, kind of the, the conclusion of, of PD's piece? Um, and it's really, it's applicable to obviously all prospects very much this year, but, but certainly Killian, uh, especially so, um, having a plan. So PD, do you want to get into like, how you know what the plan should be for a team drafting Killian? Yeah, I think that we've done a pretty good job of outlining generally what the plan is, and that's to um, to demand a specific shooting alignment to make the changes that that uh, that that organization believes in. Um, to split off his pick and roll duties and off ball duties um, to play a motion a horizontal motion based uh, scheme um, that gets him attacking a delta defense as much as possible while also running pick and rolls and then having a scheme a uh both skill development regimen and in-game application regardless of uh the circumstances a lot of teams you know have a plan to play zach levine at point guard but they don't necessarily have the stones to play zach levine at point guard and like that's one of the things i've always appreciated they're like no zach needs on ball reps i don't care what happens we're going to give zach on ball reps not every some people do not have the stomach for it. That's why, like, some youth teams don't play fast is because their coach can't handle the uh, cardiac arrhythmia of turnovers. Um, the weight development is pretty obvious. Stack on lower body weight. Um, work on the ankle flexibility. Uh, solve the valgus flexibility issues. Um, and then slowly add weight um, to the lower body. Again, there is a limit on how much weight can be added to a person safely. Um, while maintaining flexibility and, uh, you know, healthy knees. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot with uh, something you didn't prepare for. Uh, But I guess now making this like a real world discussion, what are the spots that you like for him that could realistically happen? And by the way, the correct answer is Boston. I mean, I would, I would take him for Charlotte. Like with Oh, unless, you know, something extremely strange happened. Like, I would just prepare for a world where he was in Charlotte because, I mean, Charlotte has shown a uh, very long, like, has had a very long view on prospects um, recently. They have a extremely fun offense. Their coach is wired to be developmental um, and is clearly willing to trust people in an outside regard. Like, whatever you think about Devontae, like, James Borrego has a much higher opinion of him and is willing to be like, that's my guy. He's going to shoot this many times. I do not care how you feel. And like, that's generally been his attitude of like, I know what he is. I know what he can do. Um, and the consequences, you know, my, right now might be this, but in the future, they're going to be better. And that's like what you most want out of a developmental coach is somebody who has the longest view, who's willing to, uh, you know, reassure through the bad and then through the good, just be like, yeah, keep going. Don't make a mistake. Keep going, make the right mistake. And we're good. 
Yeah, and it certainly seems like they also have some personnel in place that would be conducive to to uh, using Killian in, in kind of the ways that we've outlined with uh, Devontae and, and P.J. Washington both. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like he's going to go that high. Yeah. Um, it seems like he's more a mid-lottery guy, uh, which I think we all think is too low for him. Are there any any of the like mid-to-late lottery teams? Are there any teams that you think that should like kind of push in to move up to try to get him? I mean, I also like Atlanta a lot. Um, I think that a lot of that comes down to your view on how much utility Cam Reddish has on ball. Um, me and Travis Schlenk have a, a number of disagreements. Um, <laughs> Travis Schlenk might not know this, but uh, the people around me certainly do. Um, I would say that that's a place that makes sense because I've been of the opinion that like you need to get Trey off ball a little bit more, um, both to maximize his like defensive energy levels, his offensive energy levels. And like, this isn't a, I don't think Trey is good. It's that like, I think the Trey is fantastic and that like cutting out 5% of self-creation is going to result in like, this is much better usage where now you get to attack a tilted defense for the first time since like, I don't know, uh, he played with, uh, Michael Porter Jr., somebody like creates an opportunity for him and he gets to capitalize on it. I think that's like an interesting fit. Um, Detroit makes sense, but like Detroit's also like sort of Tabula Rasa. Um, and then like Phoenix is interesting. Like it's really interesting. I don't know the long term implications of like, like I, I really enjoy Monty Williams as a, as a developmental guy. You have a lot of interesting wing pieces. You could throw out some hilarious lineups. Um, I think like those are places that I really enjoy. Like everybody else has a like I think Killian fits in most places other than Cleveland. Um just because Cleveland has made some some allocation decisions, though KPJ and Killian would be like just a ton of six six guys who can dribble. <laughs> that would be fun. fun. Yeah, yeah I love Phoenix. Like I I I thought a lot about Phoenix like in the context of his off ball development, because they do that very well. I mean, Mikhail Bridges, Devin Booker, both exceptional off the ball at this point. Um, and I can see, you know, Killian, I, I think, like, like we talked about, that's certainly something he can develop. Uh, I, I just think that the fit with Booker is strong, also aligns with the insulating Booker with defenders kind of kind of idea. That's one that is really attractive. I mean, I, I, mean, I think, like, most prospects kind of, you can envision an attractive fit with them in Phoenix just based on the way the roster is constructed. But I do especially like Killian for them at that point. Yeah, I mean, when you have enough shooting, you can kind of, like, talk your way into anything this is sort of like the warriors big problem was that like they had so much shooting that they kept being like no really what can we get away with javale you think we can yeah okay let's try javale uh nick young yeah let's try well, like nick nick could work right like at a certain point you just reach uh like the shoot the floor is so spaced that you can truly like get away with things that should not and not any reasonable like yeah. old work and phoenix is approaching that level of shooting like obviously there's there hasn't been like that winning level, but just like they have so many plus shooters that they can take gambles on different upside bets. And like, I know that my definition of upside is very different than other people's um, just because it's for me, upside is uh, is an idea, idea based around like scarcity and, and role utility. And with Killian, you have a dude who could be a lot of different things depending on like what a team needs and putting him in these tabula rasa fits where it's like, all right, so it's Killian and like, say coup it's like it's fine like that's that's like a good baseline for a team but it's not interesting because it doesn't unlock anything about killian it's just an advantage to detroit so finding this place where it both benefits the prospect and it benefits the team not just like the team gets a good player are the places that i find most interesting 
yeah, the the Hawks one for all the reasons you described has grown on me a lot. And selfishly, my top choice is obviously that he somehow winds up uh, on the Celtics. But the one I think I kind of have my heart set on from like a an enjoyer of Killian's game and uh, just a desire to see him succeed and and um and his team succeed is Phoenix like that. It really is really appealing. Like I, I feel like they kind of satisfy so much of what we've outlined in, in terms of you know the structure of their offense, um, conceivably what their their big man can do as a as a facilitator, um, the handlers slash scores that they have on the perimeter. Like you said, all the shooting. I think that's really interesting. I would just kind of be like all the way in on Phoenix if they if they come away with him. And like, defenders just, like, take him off the number one guy at point of attack too. I mean, yeah, man, I would just be all the way in on them long term if they had Killian. I would really love to see it instead instead of them taking like Neesmith or some just like stale college guy who's older. I have I have one more like one right before the Celtics that I think is fun and has started to grow on me in the past like twenty minutes. Uh, the Sacramento Kings. Interesting. Oh, but you can't take the ball out of Fox's hands, remember? But no, I think that like you <laughs> I think that if you I mean obviously in any future plan of Sacramento involves firing Luke Walton like today. Um and getting like a, a, a good coach. Um but you can take the ball out of Fox's hands in the half court. Yes. Fox initiates all the actions, but like you in the sort of same theory as Trey, but you just Till when they get it's not like a your turn, my turn as much as it would in like the universe with Trey. But if you put him with Fox, like Fox still starts all the actions, but then he can you can run him off stuff. You can get him like running into pick and rolls. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't just be like, oh, here's a transition pick and roll. No, like Fox could have a transition pick and roll, kick it, go through on the weak side, and then like you could run Killian stuff cross court. And then Fox would be able for a nick on the weak side. So you're sort of getting multiple act like you're using Fox as a let's churn actions really quickly by using his speed as a cutter. So you're able to get him two pick and rolls in probably like 12 seconds. Yeah. And, and I mean, just that, that would be, I'd imagine a situation where you could get Killian in spots where the defense like can't set up for him. So like, you, you know, we've talked a lot about how Killian, you know, there, there, there could be some, some schematic issues for him. Like there, like you said, there, you know, there are ways you could defend Killian in a pick and roll where you're, you're forcing him to make, passes that maybe he's not capable of making but setting up for those things and being organized to deal with those is a lot harder if you know it's swinging to him on the second side from from fox you know initiating possession also um it, it bears mentioning that like you know it makes life really easy for throwing right hand lobs a guy who can like put his chin on the rim and bag <laughs> like it would also probably enable you to like get some weird lineups on the floor with bagley at the five. like obviously bagley has to be healthy for this world but like you could really like you could get very weird with it very quickly because you're not losing that much in size. Like Killian's still probably six, six. Yeah. I, I mean, are there, are there any spots you're kind of scared of? I know you mentioned Cleveland, uh, New York scares me a little bit and that one, especially cause it like seems kind of realistic. Um, are there any, are any spots that you would kind of fear for Killian's development? I think that, like, in a world where, like, Minnesota moves back is kind of scary for me. Um, I have kind of been under the assumption that, like, things are going to move around in this draft. Mm -hmm. um, just based on, like, 
like the cap is going to take like is going to act weird. Um, the billionaires who own teams are going to have different reactions to like, do they try to win now to maximize money? Do they try to get off money now? Like there are teams that are going to make non-basketball decisions based on how this, on the cap implications. Um, and that's an environment plus like, you know, the, the nature of this draft in terms of talent and, and talent plateaus is going to just make her a, a weird place. So I'm looking at some of these later teams, like Denver would kind of scare me, honestly in terms of long-term development yeah, uh, places where like anywhere he doesn't get enough, like real shots, like uh, Washington would be a hard no. Like that Washington is the scariest one. Yeah. One, one with like two creators in place. And um, no real plan long-term. Like yeah. those are the circumstances where like guys, like this is like the, to go back to the Mario party thing, like, where you drop the it down one of the pipes, you just you could you can never track it really. Like you can't predict where this thing's gonna go. You just hope you pick correct. And like what they do with the John Wall assets, or you know what they do with Beal, like those are twists and turns that are gonna alter how you develop a guy like Killian. And those things for a play for when so much is up in the air, and like the vision of what the franchise is going to be when you're de- developing a high a high upside draft pick, you don't want to have those sort of circumstances. So I mean like. The Warriors obviously are not going to make their pick, and if they do, they're not going to pick Killian. So, like, that's out. But, like, the next worst circumstance um, in terms of, like, long-term, uh, you know, importance on his development is, is Washington. Like, obviously, being around the, the Warriors' development step is a different situation. But the level of attention that Killian's going to need is pretty high. Mm-hmm. As sports keep coming back, so does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, BetOnline.ag. Major League Baseball will soon be in full swing, and there are no shortage of ways to get in on the action. BetOnline has all the odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. Also, tune in as Floyd Money Mayweather joins the BetOnline team in a new segment called The Ice is Right, where he talks about his expansive jewelry collection. He'll give you the chance to win some great prizes and bet on the cost of his bling. Visit BetOnline.ag to check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the welcome back sports bonuses. Bet online, your on your online wagering experts. 2020 has been the year of things happening that are completely out of your control. But there is one thing you can control, and that's shaving your bush. Our sponsors at Manscaped are here to remind you to do so. The Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 is a premium electric trimmer that's designed to give you a confidence boost through body image. Their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology are designed to reduce nicks or tugs on your fellas down low. The Lawnmower 3.0 is also waterproof and comes with an LED light so you can manscape in the shower, in the dark, or in a dark shower, whatever floats your boat. They also just released their Shears 2.0 nail kit, which is the perfect add-on to their Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. In fact, listeners of this show will get 20% off plus free shipping with the code armchair at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code armchair. It's time to grab 2020 by the horns by shaving that front trunk. All right. I feel like that's probably the longest that anyone has talked about Killian on a podcast before. Like, we, we just spent... We spent almost two hours talking about Killian Hayes. Um, should we move into our, into our catching eye, uh, guys? Sure. Now? Let's do it. Uh, PD, you want to get us started? Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with uh, Jemai Meshach, uh, who is a 2021 uh, shooting guard, 
Uh, he's committed to Tennessee, like a six-five wing, probably a plus three or four uh, wingspan. Um, I think he's like 49th in, in rivals right now. Uh, he goes to Etiwanda High School out of Rancho in Rancho Cucamonga. Um, as we've talked about before, if you go to Etiwanda, you're straight up a dog on defense. Um, the uh, open division playoff game versus Rancho is on YouTube, and the energy that he gives to disrupt Mobley, like it's it's pretty wild. Uh, he's an interesting guy because he also missed his junior summer uh, with a broken foot, so his like his rise from being like a low major guy to going to Tennessee is just like from one outstanding uh, junior year. Uh, the jumper solid uh, needs a little higher release point arc. Um, he's mostly a slasher at this point. So the uh, self-creation uh, is, is a point of emphasis as he goes forward, but his number one priority from the jump with his recruitment was player development. Um, he is going to be a draft nerd favorite uh, because he's already a strong dude and Tennessee has uh, the greatest strength and conditioning program <laughs> that the world has ever seen. Uh, and this dude plays just stupid hard. So like, he's a guy that in, you know, 18 months, you know, two years, everyone's going to be like, Oh yeah, there's this, you know, guy who can defend one, two, three, and depending how strong he gets four uh, in college, who's going you know, to be a great athlete who plays very hard. Like that's a guy that we're going to be talking about in the future. Mm. You want to do your other one, PD? I wanted to save it for last, but I'll go. No, um, we'll, save, we'll save it for last. We'll save it for last. Yeah. Uh, ben, do you, you have one or no? I don't. Not this week. All right. I have, I have a couple and then we can, we can do PD's, uh, PD's last one. Um, all right. Now I guess we'll go to the opposite of a guy who tries hard. I continue to be like completely baffled by how Elijah Hughes is a like a thing and how he, he is like some beloved prospect. I like I understand not wanting to watch Syracuse. It is not a fun experience. Um it's just it's really unpleasant. Um but I like there, I, there's no way that the people who are hyping up Elijah Hughes as like a lottery guy have seen him play. Like he is really like really a terrible defensive player who does not try at all. Like, it's really incredible. Um, and then, like, he's not that good of a shooter. Like, he's not some exceptional passer. I, I just really, really just baffling that uh, I, I I don't get it. Like, it's really – it's it's like I'm watching a different person than all these people. Like, like even someone like Precious, like, I, I get to an extent why he's hyped up. Like, I get that he has – uh, the RSCI track record. And I understand the appeal of him even like a, as like a late first type of guy, but Hughes just, I, I really, I don't, I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. I mean, talk about someone who lacks, you know, a functional package or standout skills or really all of the above is, I, I mean, I'm with you. He's just like an unspectacular six foot six shooter. Who's not even that great of a shooter. I mean, if he was like a really good shooter, that would be another story. Like, he's not great at shooting. He's not great at passing. He's not great at finishing. Um, like you said, like, even the, you know, zone, zone, whatever, he's not great in the zone. No, uh, he's terrible. No, he's yeah. not just not great. He's, like, really awful. Um, and, and it's it's both, like, a combination of, one, not knowing all of the, like, pre-programmed movements in a zone that you, like, have kind of no excuse for not knowing, 
and two, not trying at all. Like it's it's really like stunning. Like I I just I like cannot imagine spending a draft pick on him. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a no for me as well. Um, there is a level of dominance you have to be as an older uh, wing, and he doesn't need it. Uh, shooters who don't like run insanely hot can't be streaky. Like there are guys who are forty percent shooters, and they have like you know. Vassell games where they're six for seven with a whole bunch of off the off the dribble threes, but he also has games where it's one for seven, two for eight, and that's discouraging from a guy who um, both has uh, like difficult tape. And if you know if Mello is the first best player from Syracuse and Jeremy Grant's the second best player from Syracuse, who's the third best player from Syracuse in the past twenty years? Alan Griffin. Probably. Is it Malachi Richardson? <laughs> Probably Michael. Um, um, I, well, I mean, I think the, the age point is something to like emphasize as well. Cause he sat out a year as a transfer. He's 22. He's I, I'm going to do my Jason Tatum point of reference thing again. He's a week older than Jason Tatum, man. Like, could you imagine if Jason Tatum were playing at Syracuse, what he would look like? Like, Oh man, I just, Oh, I, I really, really don't get it. Uh, and I, I don't like, I, I, I like, I've seen people suggesting him as like a lottery pick. And like, granted, that is not a mainstream view, but like, it seems like he's firmly a at least a top half of the second guy. I, I want to check what he's at on ESPN right now, but like, I, it's just stunning to me. Like, I, it, like even even someone like no, like Nora, like who who I don't think is any good either. Uh, at least he's definitely a good shooter. Right? Yeah, I would say Nora is like a, a level of uh, at least a level of shooter better than Hughes. Yeah, and it's- ESPN has. Hughes 43 and Nora 44. By the right. way, two, two spots ahead of Isaiah Joe at 46. <laughs> Who's two levels of shooter better than both of them. Yeah, and also just like fantastic at basketball, unlike yeah. either of them. Um I mean I can I can understand drafting Nora at like the end if yeah. you if you really if you buy the like the idea that like there's more athleticism to be untapped and he could like be a you know a shooter on the second half of that rookie deal. I can get it, but Hughes for me just doesn't meet enough of the thresholds. And I get people who like look at the collective idea of him. Like if you're just looking at it on paper, you're like, oh yeah, this is a guy like it's a wing. The world needs wings. The world kind of needs guys who can who profile as potential shooters. But like when you break it down and just look at like how good you have to be as a 22 year old college player, the answer is like, hey, you got to be Grant Riller. Yeah. And like if you if you put Grant Riller at Syracuse, Grant Riller would have been phenomenal. I don't know the same would be said if like if Hughes were asked to obviously like they're different size players, but like if you put him with the same usage at Charleston, I don't know if that's a player that we return to and be like, this is a guy who needs to be drafted. Probably not, honestly. Yeah, I mean the the Nora like counterexample is I think very valuable because like I, I don't like Jordan Nora. I don't think I would draft him, but I, I wouldn't really begrudge a team for doing it necessarily. Like he is six seven and a very good shooter. Um Everything else leaves a lot to be desired, but he has that at least. Like Hughes, I just don't even know what like the, a single selling point is. I, I, I just it's it's really baffling to me. Um, anyone who is like interested in him, I guess, uh, just like watch some more. I guess would be my advice. Like I, I just really, really don't get it. Um, it it's like re- like I think probably the single most baffling guy. That like he, he well Oturu as well. Uh, I I've done that one to death. 
I, I, I even get that a little bit more just because he like ostensibly has physical tools, but man, the Hughes thing is, is really nuts to me. Um, the other guy that I had was Devon Dotson, uh, less like, uh, opposition to that, but I, I just, Devon Dotson, I don't really understand how he got a reputation as a great defensive player. Cause I don't think that even in, like not, I don't mean as a prospect, just, I mean, currently, like, I don't really think he was a good defensive player at Kansas, to be honest. I think he's really like quite bad off the ball and honestly on the ball, like he dies on a lot of screens. There, there are good moments. Um, but I'm, I don't think he's a really particularly good defensive player. I don't think that he'll be like some massive negative, uh, but it just kind of fits in with the general idea of like, he, he is a guy who, yes, he has a good stat profile uh, and is very fast, but like, you know, for him being fast doesn't translate to breaking guys down off the dribble in a one-on-one setting. Like I just, the, he's an off ball guard who is not that good of a shooter uh, and is not that good of a defender. Like I, I could definitely see him being a, you know, low level rotation player in the NBA. And that's fine for a pick at like 40. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I just don't get where the defensive reputation has come from with him. It's like, there's only so much you can do at six feet. And when you're not outlier strong or smart, I mean, like, like, I mean, I don't really think that's even the case with him. Like there, there are guys who are small, like Malachi Flynn. And yes, he's really, really smart. But like Malachi is a really good defense or was a really good defensive player at San Diego State um, because like he would get over screens and he would involve himself off the ball and was very anticipatory. Like Dotson makes it's not just that like he can't make plays at like, you know, rotating at the rim. Like he just gets back cut and loses guys and like doesn't make rotations. And and then like on the ball, you know, there's no reason that that he shouldn't be able to get over screens like that that shouldn't be a problem for him. Uh, but like, he's just not a, a good defensive player. And I don't, I don't, I don't really know where the, the rep comes from. Uh, PD, you want to do your, your thing you're saving for last? Yeah. So my question is, uh, which one is more real? Matthew Hurt going from listed to 14 in his uh, freshman season at Duke like it's probably 10 pounds of uh assumption and then knock off another 10 pounds for playing weight up to a listed 235 or aaron neesmith going from a pretty good shooter to essentially the greatest shooter since 88 steve kerr which one of those is more real oh man uh i mean the hurt thing is just a lie like yeah (laughs) like there's not a chance in hell that Matthew Hurt weighs 240 pounds. Well, there's first not a of all, Matthew Hurt was not 214 last yeah, year. There's not a chance in hell Matthew Hurt weighed 214 last year. And there's certainly no chance that he now weighs as much as Xavier Tillman. Uh, there's no way. Uh, it, it's just a lie. Uh, I, the question is, do, has, when we next see Matthew Hurt, does it like look like he has added any noticeable muscle? I think that's a better question than is Matthew Hurt actually 240 now? Yeah, I mean, I no way to know until we see. It's like it's it's like we talked about last like last week, like Trey Man six six, like like I want to see it. Like, but that's more believable than Matthew Hurt now being two forty, unless he's like ten feet tall now. I don't know. Like, I, I just if if your concern 
uh, with the wider draft community is, you know, people on these second round guys, like they're at least not gambling that much. The people who are gambling on like Aaron Neesmith having, the, which as far as I could find, like I spent, you know, an hour searching this, this week for the most drastic improvement that a real shooter had to like becoming an upper echelon shooter. Like he basically went from like a very, like a very good shooter considering the difficulty to like supernova. Um, and at least Kerr had like the short three point line. Like this was the hottest three point shooting stretch that like ended a season. And people are going to stake a first round pick on that. Like a second round pick. Oh, they're going to stake a lottery pick on him. I just, if there's one thing I don't understand, it's the idea of taking Aaron e. Smith in the first, like in, I don't want to say the first round, but like that's roughly where I am. Like, I mean, I, I, would, I, I would probably like 25 is when I would start looking. Cause like, I just, if there's no historical precedent, either like if he had got hurt three games later, like he might not have been a lot, like he would not be discussed as a lottery pick. Like, because that's the, the chances that he's at this level of shooter are so low, like, because almost nobody ever has been. Yeah. I mean, he, he built up enough of a like sample of, of just like, I mean, he built up enough variance in his favor that like, I, I, I looked at it at the time. Like if he had, if he had even just reverted to his normal, to his percentages from last year, like he had just built up so many makes that his numbers still would have looked pretty ridiculous. Um, but I think that, I mean, just there, there would have been such a divide between the non-conference schedule and then the SEC schedule that I think, like, I think it would have tripped people up a bit. I mean, um, it, it was, that injury was like certainly fortunate for his stock in terms of competition level played. I mean, yeah. They, can I, can I read some of these historical numbers that I found just to, to put yeah, some of this in the, okay. So this is uh, my query was people who had taken 93s in a season. Um, obviously, Neesmith is over 90, but it, it catches enough historical people. Um, Mitch Richmond went from 361 to 469. Damon Stoudemire went from 351 to 465. Buddy Heald as a freshman went from 238 to 38%. Jeff Capel went from 33% to uh, 437. Anthony Morrow went from 365 to 422. Nate Walters went from 241 to 379. And freshman Allen Iverson went from 232 to 366. So again, Aaron Neesmith, 337 to 522. Like, yeah. Considering that those dudes had, like, the only reason that Kerr isn't on this list is because I don't think they had the, the three-point line his junior year. Um, but these are people who, like, there are some world historic shooters who didn't have that level of jump because there's almost nobody who has taken enough threes and developed that much as a shooter to that level uh you know we got uh not to mention the line moved out in between these seasons the line moved farther away from the basket yeah it's just not it's just not i i really struggle oh i'm sorry we got one more we got seth allen went from uh 280 to 441 it's just the classic like how variable three-point shooting is in a small sample i mean it's you just cannot rely on that number Right, but when you're even when you look at it as like his all-time shooting numbers, do you know who comes up in all the all-time shooting queries that like include, and like comes out higher in every single one? Desmond Bain. Yeah, like with more sample on harder shots with more variety. It's one of those things where I'm like, you have to slice the data in such a really specific and small way to come to the conclusion that like 
Neesmith is worth a lottery pick. And like, this is before we even just like on the value of shooting, you have to basically only look at like the, like these small numbers and don't look around at the historical precedent of it. And that's something that I really struggle with. It was like the people who were like, oh yeah, he shot, you know, 50% from three. It's like, okay, that's cool. Who else has ever, uh, who else has like played these short amount of times. And every time that you come back to these numbers, it's like, oh, that's entirely unsustainable. Like Allen Iverson had about as bad of a freshman shooting season as possible. He bounced back to the sophomore and shot like pretty well. Nobody has ever gone from good to flamethrower and stayed that way ever. And I'm expecting to believe that like an injury shortened season, there's no bounce back. And also that flamethrower is the best shooter in this draft without any of the numbers or versatility of other guys who have better numbers for longer with more versatility. There's just such a specific mind complex that I can't get yeah. through. What is your expectation of Neesmith as a shooter? Like what, you don't need to put a number on it, but like what kind of level of shooter, like elites, just sub elite, um, you know, what, what's your expectation? Wait, sub elite. Like, is he a better shooter than buddy? T grass? No. Oh God. No. Right. Like I mean, buddy can shoot off the dribble. Like, you no, know, no. I just mean like for like use, like, would you, is he a better shooter than buddy? Like, if, no, if I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so either. Buddy's a ridiculous shooter. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just don't – I don't have an answer that I'm comfortable with for, like, what level of shooter he has to be to be the player that he's projected to be. Like, mm-hmm. it, does he have to be Duncan? Like, is that the level of shooter he has to be for, like, this whole thing to make sense? Do Like, as a lottery pick? Yeah. Uh, I don't think he has to quite be Duncan Robinson. Like, But, that- like, on, on usage volume too, though. Like not just in terms of shooting, but like you, he has to go into a role where they use him like that that yeah, often. That that is true. Yes, to be to be worth a lottery pick, yeah, he has to have the Duncan Robinson usage. Yeah, he needs like a team that's going to commit to using him off of movement, like to really be worth that that much of a pick. And that's kind of under discussed to me. That like but what's he, okay? Like, so let's say he takes the Duncan Robinson shot profile, right? What is the like the number and the volume that makes sense to okay? Tankathon says eleven, so we'll say like picked him the like the back end of the lottery, ten to, to fourteen. How many threes does he have to take per thirty six or per game? And what number does he have to make on like what's essentially the hardest shots in the entire world? Uh, per th- uh, like eight to ten at around forty percent, I would say. I mean, he has to be pretty close to Duncan Robinson, I would say. Like. I mean, we've done this to death with him and Sadiq both. Like, I think they're both bad defensive prospects. I think that that's kind of the – that's – well, I don't want to say that's the whole problem with, like, the mainstream evaluation of the two of them because, like, you know, the the, the whole – like, I, Neesmith – I've, I've done this many times, but Neesmith is very popular among Celtics fans – really want him with the 14th pick that would be catastrophic uh and he would not be able to play in their offense at all uh or their defense um but like that would be terrible but that's not even like the element of the evaluation where it falls off like uh the the, the defense alone it's just like these guys are billed as as three and d players and they're not even good defensive players so i do think that like Neesmith, i think he like pretty much would have to be like 90 plus percent of Duncan Robinson. Yeah, I don't think he has to get to like like 45 percent on 10 per 36, but like fairly close. I mean, like 40 percent, seven to nine. Like, and even then, I'm still skeptical of the value of him in the lottery there. Like, okay, so like I don't think that this counts as three and D players because like I don't have a name for it offhand, but like they're essentially trebuchets who can slide their feet. If you like, we'll work on the branding later, but like. 
what percentage of Duncan Robinson does he need to be on defense? Oh God! Um, if he shoots, we'll say like eight eight attempts and makes like forty, which is you know I think fairly reasonable. He is nowhere near the defensive prospect that Duncan Robinson is currently. So, what percent of current Duncan Robinson does he need to be to be worth a pick from ten to fourteen? Oh God! I, I, I still I still think it's like ninety ish percent of Duncan. And then uh, the the survey says what number you think of Duncan he currently is on defense. Oh God! You're like, oh, I, I'm I'm not well versed enough on Duncan's defense, honestly, to like really to really say. Give me give me some lower third, top top half. You can you can make it a pretty wide chart. Probably like forty ish, maybe. Maybe I don't know. I, I have like, a lot of issues with Neesmith on defense. I I think he's a weird defensive player. I think we. When, when I forget when we talked about this, but I was saying that like he seems to not really understand the scheme that he's supposed to be executing, like stunning week. amount of the time. Yeah, last week that like he, he has these communication issues, but he also just seems to have like no clue what he's being asked to do, and maybe that's not entirely his fault. Uh, but just like he's on top of that, very immobile, like cannot cover ground, and I think that ground coverage is one of the more underrated things for defensive players especially when you get up the side spectrum and you're playing more off the ball and you have more team responsibilities like ground coverage is huge and he really really cannot cover ground uh and so like yeah he has no chance of being a a air coats wing stopper like he's not going to be good at that but i think he's going to have real issues as a team defender uh just because of lack of mobility um i don't know i don't i don't think highly of him as a defensive player at all uh, I think that he's highly specialized as an offensive player. Uh, I think that like he's he's a huge you need to have a plan guy to draft him. Like if if the Celtics drafted him, that would be really bad unless Brad Stevens is all of a sudden planning to overhaul his offense, which I don't think he's planning to do for uh, the 14th pick. Um, you know, if the if the Heat somehow had a lottery pick and got Neesmith, that would make sense. But he's I guess pretty redundant with Duncan Robinson. I don't I don't really know if they're any of what other teams are capable of deploying a guy like that or interested in deploying a guy like that. But you better be planning to do that. If you draft Aaron Smith in the lottery, like your plan better be to use him as Duncan Robinson. I just, I think that um, these conversations need to happen whenever a um, new archetype of guy succeeds in the playoffs where like people immediately like copycat league is sort of like the idea, but I think it happens more with um, a moment. Big City PD. Um, that dude's just posting up from your house. Okay, so uh, I think that with analysts, it, it, people underrate how difficult and how specialized it has to be. And as a result, everyone thinks they can just like find one off the street. They're like, this person made a huge impact, and therefore there's like 10 of them laying around that sort of presents stuff. I'm like, what's this year's Draymond? It's like, that's the point. There's <laughs> zero, there are zero other Draymonds laying around. If there were, like, the, the world would be a better place because we'd have magnificent defensive rotations and be a symphony on every single NBA court. Instead, there's one. Like, we have one, and in history, we probably have, like, five. Yeah, I mean, it's it's conceivable that, like, you know, a Duncan Robinson is less rare than a Draymond, but even then, like, how you know, how many situations are going to get Duncan Robinson out of Duncan Robinson? Is it more than one? Yeah, I mean, Miami's like kind of the perfect spot for him in terms of developmental culture and on-court fit. Um, I mean, I, I mean, there's probably 
other worlds where other teams where he's valuable, but I don't think there's any other situation where he's as valuable as he's become. Like an important part about Duncan is that like, you don't really run normal stuff. Like you, you have to have a coach that like um, I've talked about this with, with Carlisle a bunch where like Carlisle runs stuff that every high school coach wishes they could run, but they can't because he starts stuff out of the weirdest alignments and everything is in a different place for different people. And like, that's how a lot of the Duncan stuff starts is you're just like, when can I use this? I can't steal it. Cause this is the circumstance. You have to literally scrap your offense every second he's on the floor and just be like, yeah, you have to worry about the fact that I might let Duncan Robinson shoot from 37 feet away. Like yeah, that's it's like just the reality. Yeah. You, you kind of need a bam to like, to make a Duncan work and like, but, or, but you or also something. need a spo. Yeah, he's yeah, like a spo and a Jimmy. I mean, but like, you know how crazy you look if that doesn't work. Like, if you, if Duncan Robinson like is like a thirty eight percent three point shooter, you know how like you get lit on fire, and like not everybody is willing to take those. Like everyone wants a dude like that, but no one is willing to put their job on the line for a like a fringe player that helps a good team become a great team, but doesn't help a bad team become a solid team. Like that is not a utility that brings you towards like playoff readiness that's a team that helps you win a series or two so i'm guessing the answer might be dallas but pd are there any spots that you do like like somewhat realistic neesmith spots so say anywhere from like 10 to 20 i guess um i mean utah makes 20 20 is miami also yeah i mean like uh utah makes sense um i think that there is a world where like 28 with the lakers makes sense though i'd rather have isaiah joe there yeah, I mean, um, he's just gonna be so. Yeah. He's just been gone by then. Like it seems like it certainly seems like he is a guy who's going to go in maybe the ten to twenty range. Maybe and, nineteen to the Nets. And I don't think LA would be able to commit to using him the way he need he needs to be used. Uh, no, I think I think that um, like if if they if Braun has always been not that like Braun controls everything, but like Braun has always been a person who's not wanted to be shot off shot off the floor. And if you're just like, hey, we have a guy who can do this thing. And it's an opportunity yeah. to get you and Anthony Davis like ISOs in a very strange way, which is like sort of the thing that Miami like can do with Bam, sort of, but they don't have like a wing who can necessarily like create the leverage. Like Jimmy's great, but he's he's not that level, like that, you know, five best players in the NBA where it's like if you get them on an island, it's basically a wrap. Yeah. And that's the idea of if you wanted to put Aaron Neesmith at like 19 with KD or with Braun. It's like you you can run that wild offense and there's always going to be a floor because you know you have a, an elite player on the floor who can create their own shots as teams navigate elite screens mm-hmm. which is the lesson that like I'm sure um, like an, a bad team is going to be like oh we can do that stuff it's like well you don't have Bam or Jimmy to weigh down the floor and you may not have Spo to draw things up and if it's this doesn't work like we're all going to get fired like oh, that's a lot that's a lot to put on a guy who like has a historical outlier shooting half season yeah, don't draft Aaron Neesmith in the lottery. I mean, I, look, if, if I I love it when people gamble. I just am. I think that there is a very specific set of circumstances where he is going to be extraordinarily valuable. And if you don't have one of like, I don't like if if Bud gets fired and and Milwaukee goes like, you know what, we're gonna run like a super emotion heavy offense and try to get like Giannis quick looks all the time. And we're, you know, going to decide to, like, have him have the ball at the top of the key almost never. Like, sure, we can maybe talk there. But, like, there's just – there's a commitment to a larger philosophy that most teams are unwilling to absorb because of all the difficulties required in integrating it. 
All right. Ben. So yeah, Matthew Hurt, fake ass 235. <laughs> like that's what it comes down to. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I like, you know, he, he better come out and be like, like, is he the uh is he the iron chin now where he just has like this extension? <laughs> No, yeah, Matthew Hurt is up to 240 because his bones have been uh, coated in adamantium. <laughs> That's we have now reached a logical explanation, a yeah. logical and as likely as Matthew Hurt being actual 235. If you if Matthew Hurt is 235, shoot me that diet and weight plan. I'm trying to add 60 pounds of muscle this summer as well. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that seems like a fitting place to end for us. Uh, once again, thank you to PD Webb for, for joining us on this Killian extravaganza plus more. Um, follow him on Twitter at Above the Break 3. He does awesome work, including the aforementioned Killian piece. Is there anything that you want to plug or, or say, PD? Uh, no. Um, I like we've covered it uh if you do want um to hear more of my voice and potentially voices of some people who are on this podcast um there is a, a podcast that i've worked on called it's about joy where we just talk about how basketball is fun um it's a time i enjoy it hint hint yes um go ch- go check that out if it's pds it's probably going to be good um that's a fair rule of thumb uh so yeah thank you all for listening to to us this week uh, you can follow the pod on Twitter at prep number two pro pod. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, all of the above. Leave, you know, please, you know, we love it if you left five star reviews and ratings. That that is very very helpful for us and and not too difficult to do. So that would be awesome. We would very much appreciate it. Uh, you can follow Max on Twitter at Max A Carlin. Follow me at Ben underscore Pfeiffer underscore. And unless there's anything else you all want to say, uh, I think that's it. Uh, subscribe to PD on Patreon. Yes, subscribe to PD's Patreon. Pay him to do basketball things until a team pays him to do basketball things. All right. Uh, I believe that is it. Uh, Have a great week, and we'll see you all next week.